This is God's word. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. Then they shall dwell in their own land. Read this far in God's word. How appropriate and beautiful that in God's perfect providence we have arrived at chapter 23 in our study of Jeremiah right on the Sunday known as Palm Sunday. This fits perfectly. Now, why do I say that? Because for those who have been studying this together with me, the book of Jeremiah, this passage reads a bit differently than what we've studied so far. In Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 8, the first time in the wonderful book of Jeremiah, our poor, suffering prophet looked far ahead into the future, centuries into the future, and this is the first time that Jeremiah wrote about the coming of the one who would fulfill God's ideal as king. This coming king would fulfill all of God's requirements for justice and godly leadership. This passage reads like a triumphal entry passage for those of us studying the difficult passages we've had before this. It's like a sudden and small glimpse of the type of king that we truly need and seriously want. This passage stands like a ray of hope in the middle of a very dark section of Scripture. One day, the king will reign on the throne of David. But wait, how does that square with everything we've been studying? And in particular, how does this passage square with what we just looked at in the previous chapter, chapter 22? Let me explain. Remember in our previous study how God was condemning the kings? Out of order chronologically, we saw from chapter 21 that there was condemnation of King Zedekiah, the last king. And then, subsequent to that in the book chapters, but prior to that in real-time history, chapter 22, as if speaking to King Zedekiah, spoke about the previous three evil kings, King Shalom, King Jehoiakim, and King Coniah. That whole section ended with the very last verse of chapter 22. You can look at chapter 22, verse 30, which reads, 
Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. The kings were bad. But what about the prophecies that Jesus will be descended from the house of David and sit on his throne? Doesn't it seem like that verse, chapter 22, verse 30, condemns that promise to never be fulfilled? Well, you sit here in the New Testament age, you sit here with a New Testament in your Bible on your lap, and you know how the story goes in the future. We could fast forward to our New Testaments and we could read ahead and know that the New Testament genealogies of Jesus show that Joseph, the stepfather, if you could say, of Jesus, was the son of David through King Coniah, or what we could call King Jehoiachin. What we learn there is that a biological son of Joseph, a biological descendant of Jehoiakim, could not sit on the throne per Jeremiah 22, verse 30. Jesus, if he had been the natural biological son of Joseph and the biological descendant of Jehoiachin, would not have had the right to be king. But in God's perfect providence, his justice and amazing orderliness, Jesus was born by the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary so that he was not the biological son of Joseph, but he was the biological son of Mary. So Mary was a descendant of David through Nathan, the brother of Solomon, and so Jesus had the right to rule on the throne of David. We learn from this beautiful facts that God ties together all of history and that he works in ways that human beings can't possibly anticipate. We have to better understand the promise of God about the throne of David. What did God really promise? And it brings us to our main point of tonight's message. The Lord God promised to make things right. And God did just that. He made things right. The kings on the throne of David failed by sinning grievously. That's what we read in chapter 21 and chapter 22. They must be dethroned. And yet, God still promised unfailing faithfulness to his promise to David and to his people through the throne of David. So in this passage now, chapter 23, 1 through 8, about God's promise to make things right, We'll see first how God provided shepherds who care and they make things right. Second, how the true king himself makes things right. And third, we'll see how there's nothing more right than people being home together. Of course, Jesus is the promised righteous branch. Jesus is the son of Jehoiachin who reversed the curse on Jehoiachin's line by accepting the judgment the father sent on him just as Jehoiachin had accepted his judgment from God. Jesus is the son of David who rose and so therefore now reigns, and everything's right with heaven, everything's right in the universe, and soon our King Jesus Christ will make every single thing right. We live in a messed up world and we need reminders that with the larger umbrella of the whole universe, all things are right and continue on as right. He reigns now, and he will reign forever. He will punish evil. He will pour out blessings on us, his people. Until then, Jesus provides in his church shepherds who care. 
Jesus is the king who rules wisely and does all things well. And King Jesus is the one who will take us all home to be together with him and with each other. And he will reign forever in the right way. So first, shepherds who care. Verses 1 through 4, shepherds here is referring to shepherd kings. Shepherds are leaders, not just farmers out there taking care of sheep, but they're shepherd kings. They're referring to governmental and religious leaders. And that makes you think of everything from uh, Adam to today, right? The story of world history is a story of bad shepherding in governmental leaders and religious leaders. Political leaders through human history have, how do we summarize, enslaved and killed their own people? And then spiritual leaders through human history have caused spiritual harm to their followers instead of healing, gain, and growth. So we need, as humans and as a human race, better shepherds in politics and in the church. A declining church in America is a sign of declining gospel ministry in America. How many pastors in America are not acquainted with the living Christ himself? Are these shepherds who care or wolves who devour? What will Christ do about this problem? We need not worry, for Christ is reigning and he will make things right, you see. And so in these first four verses of our passage, God, through his spokesman Jeremiah, describes a future vision of the true shepherd, the good shepherd. He begins, though, with an oracle, a woe oracle. Verse 1 begins with the very word woe, woe to. Now, if I just stood up and you didn't know what passage I'm referring to and I said woe to, what might you initially think of? Our Lord Jesus Christ saying to the Pharisees, woe to you. The messages of Jesus in his preaching sound sometimes like Jeremiah, don't they? We hear that sort of talk in the preaching of Jesus, like we hear here in the, here in the preaching of Jeremiah, woe to you. And so he, Jeremiah, speaking on behalf of the Lord, writes, woe to the shepherds. Why? Why? Because these shepherds did the two exact opposite things from what they should have done. Number one, there were bad shepherds who destroyed the sheep instead of protecting the sheep. You have to admit that's the opposite. You either destroy or protect. And number two, the bad shepherds scattered the sheep instead of gathering them together. You have to admit that those are two opposites. You either scatter or gather, and they were doing the wrong things. These are not true shepherds, so woe to them. True shepherds would go to great lengths to care for the sheep and to gather them. So in verse 2, God gave consequences to the bad shepherds. Since they did not attend to God's sheep, therefore God would attend to them. That's not trying to be cute. That's trying to reflect to you what's seen in the original Hebrew. He uses the same verb. If you don't attend to them, I'll tend to you. If you don't take care of them, I'll take care of you. There's two meanings that we have in English, and it's the same wordplay in Hebrew. If you won't attend to my people, I'll attend to you, says God, for your evil deeds. The punishment of the bad shepherds signaled the beginning of salvation for the sheep. Verse 3, God himself will perform the action of the true shepherd. Yes, God himself will gather the sheep, since the shepherds wouldn't, but not all of the sheep. 
Notice how God will gather the remnant of his flock, verse 3. Out of all the countries where God himself had driven them, the remnant refers to the faithful people of God who survived the coming judgment and provide the starter for the rebuilding of God's people post-exile, after exile. God would bring the remnant back to the fold. God would cause the remnant sheep to be fruitful and multiply. And in verse 4, God will set over the sheep shepherds who will care for them. And this shows a godly leadership that's promised and coming in the future. Isn't that a welcome message for the people who've been hearing what Jeremiah has been preaching? And what's the result? The sheep will fear no more. The sheep will be dismayed no more. And none of the sheep will go missing. These three beautiful results in verse 4 simply listed out for us. Shepherds who care make things right. Moving on to Verses 5 and 6, and our second point, the true king makes things right. The shepherd already was getting at aspects of leadership and kingship, but now he have actually the term king and the description here. So verse 5, the phrase, the days are coming, was a phrase that showed a vision and promise of a better future. Hope is rising because better days are coming. What exactly will those days look like? Days are coming that what? Oh, Lord, what would make the future better? God himself says in verse 5, he will raise up a David type of ruler. He calls him a righteous branch. And this term, branch, is a specific term that comes from the idea of an image. Imagine the people of God like a tree. The whole tree has been cut down, and all that's left is a stump. And out of that stump, you really are hoping that something will start to grow again. Because if the stump is dead, it's over. So we need something to grow up from that stump. And it's the word branch. It throws us a little bit because in English we think of a branch from a whole tree. Maybe the word shoot would help you better to think of what this word is. A shoot coming up out of the stump. In other words, from the cut down promise, God will grow his salvation. From the cut down promise, of a righteous king on David's throne to save the people from enemies, they'll be carted off into exile. Where's the promise now? It seems like it's cut down when they go to exile. There's no promise. From the cut down promise, God will bring the first sign of growth from the stump. God will bring the first sign of hope for a future leader that will reverse the problem of slavery and exile. This leader will bring them Back home. So, four good characteristics are quickly listed about the future leader in verse 5. Number one, he shall reign as a king. Number two, he shall deal wisely. Number three, he shall execute justice in the land. And number four, he shall execute righteousness in the land. The true king makes things right. And verse 6 discusses this salvation for Judah and secure dwelling for Israel. Oh, how those are warm and welcome words for someone sitting in exile. Oh, how those are warm words for someone who's hearing it before exile as Jeremiah is preaching it to them. All of this is crowned with a name for this ruler, and Jeremiah provides the name for us. I want to explain this to you before we go on. The Lord is our righteousness is the name at the end of verse 6. That doesn't feel like much of a name to us. You have to admit that, right? You read this, the Lord is our righteousness. That feels like a whole sentence. That doesn't feel like a name to us, right? But in, in Hebrew, it's actually a name. It starts with Lord, and then it says righteousness. 
Let me explain. Like, you've heard the phrase Jehovah Jireh. It's the same makeup, the name of the Lord, and then Jireh. It just means the Lord is our provider. So you try to translate that into English, you get this great sentence, great translation, the Lord is our righteousness. But in Hebrew, let me say it to you this way, Jehovah Zedek, the Lord righteous, the one who does right. And what did you hear when I said Zedek? Jehovah Zedek, the Lord Zedek. It's a play on a name. Think back, Zedek. And if I say, I uh, like Yahweh, Zedekiah, are you with me now? It's a play on the name King Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, the classic colossal fool that we have been hearing about the last two chapters. God says the name of the righteous king, the name of the true king is Zedekiah, Jehovah Zedekiah. He's Zedekiah, the human king, is not the righteous king. He is the anti-righteous king. There's going to be another ruler coming. The day is coming, declares the Lord, when this true Zedekiah, this true king, will make things right, the very same things that Zedekiah messed up. The true king is coming. The true king will make things right. Moving to our third point, nothing is more right than being home together. Verse 7. Again, we get this phrase from God through his spokesman, Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming. What sort of days are coming? We are getting more about the characteristics of the promise and why we should have hope rising. Days when people will change what they say. What does that mean? The things they used to say were... What a great action of God to redeem his people and bring them up out of slavery in Egypt through the miracle of the parting of the waters and having his people come through on dry ground. It was the classic redemption action of God in all the Old Testament. Oh, the great exodus. Exodus, exodus, exodus. It's the time when God saved his people when they were surely goners. He saved them between rock and a hard place. He saved them between an army and a sea. He parted the waters and had them walk right through like champions. They couldn't get enough of talking about the great exodus. And what God himself says is, you ain't seen nothing yet. What God says is that action is going to be followed by God doing something even greater. Are you ready for what the future action will be from God? Verse 8, God will bring his people back from exile. They haven't even gone yet. He's saying, look, I'm going to send you into exile because the judgment of your sins deserves that. But after exile, who thinks after exile? Exile means you're goners. After exile, I'll bring you back. And it will be such a wonderful salvation that in comparison, you're going to practically forget the deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Wow. This is a beautiful passage compared to all the heavy stuff that we've been studying in Jeremiah. On the day of Jeremiah's prophecy, there's a promise of such huge proportions that it's hard to even imagine. Are we in the same book of Jeremiah? That there would be a second exodus is one absolutely mind-blowing fact. 
And number two, that the second exodus will be greater than the first exodus? I'm in. I'm ready. This is wonderful. But what is the meaning? What is the message? He's saying, don't worry. Christ will care for you. The Messiah will come. He will care for you. Christ is the anointed one, meaning the true king, and he will take care of his people. He will not only rescue his people from exile, but then after they're brought out of exile, God will always look out for them. So what is so great about this that makes it even greater than the first exodus? What did the people do after the first exodus? They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. What did the people do after the second exodus, after they came out of exile? Why is it greater? Let me read you the last verse of our passage and listen for what is so great about it. Specifically, listen for what the people did after the second exodus, after the exile. Verse 8, But as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. I tried to help you by emphasizing the last couple words. They get to go home. There's no wandering round and round in the wilderness. They get to go to their own land. That, you have to admit, is greater than the first exodus. There's something about going home where if the king is going to make things right, what he needs to really make right then is for us to go home and the people will live in their own assigned land again. If we could get there, then all is right with the world and the universe. There's nothing more right than being home together. Many years ago in England, a circus elephant named Bozo was very popular with the public, and children especially loved to crowd around his cage and throw him peanuts. One day there was a sudden change in the elephant's personality. He tried to kill his keeper a few times, and when children came near his cage, he would charge toward them as if he desired to trample the children to death. Quite a change. It was obvious that they were going to have to destroy the elephant. No use to a circus. Well, the circus owner was a greedy and crude man, and he decided to stage a public execution of the animal, make some money off of this. And this way he could sell tickets and recoup some of the cost he would lose such valuable property. The day came, and the huge circus tent was packed with people. Bozo, the misbehaving elephant, in his cage was in center ring, and nearby stood a firing squad, literally, with high-powered rifles. The manager, standing near the cage, was about to give the signal to fire when out of the crowd came a short and inconspicuous man in a brown derby hat. There's no need for this, he told the manager. The manager brushed him aside. He's a bad elephant. He has to die before he kills someone. You're wrong, insisted this man. Give me two minutes in the cage alone with the elephant and I'll prove you're wrong. The manager turned and stared at this little man in amazement. You'll be killed, he said. I don't think so, said the man. Do I have your permission? The manager, being the kind of man that he was, was not about to pass up such a dramatic spectacle and the opportunities abound for paying customers. So if 
the man were killed, the publicity, but it would be worth millions in advertising alone. All right, said the manager, but first you'll have to sign this release form for resolving the circus of all responsibility. The man signed the paper. He removed his coat. He removed his hat. Preparing to enter the cage, the manager told the people what was about to happen, so a hush fell on the entire crowd. The door to the cage was unlocked. The man stepped inside. The door was locked behind him. And at the sight of this stranger in the cage, the elephant threw back his trunk, let out a roar as only elephants can do, bent his head, preparing to charge. The man stood quite still, a faint smile on his face as he began to talk to the elephant. The audience was so quiet that those nearest the cage could hear the man talking, but couldn't make out the words. Slowly, as the man continued to talk, the elephant raised his head. Then the crowd heard an almost piteous cry from the elephant as his enormous head began to sway gently from side to side. And smiling, the man walked confidently toward the elephant and began to stroke his long trunk. All aggression seemed to suddenly have been drained from the elephant. Docile as a pup now, he wound his trunk around the man's waist, and the two walked slowly around the ring. The astounded audience could bear the silence no longer and broke out in cheers and clapping. And while the man bade farewell to the elephant, he left the cage. He said to the circus manager, the elephant will be all right now. You see, this is an Indian elephant, and none of you spoke his language, Hindustani. I would advise you to get someone around here who speaks Hindustani. Your elephant, sir, is homesick. With that, the little man put on his coat and his hat, and he left. The astounded manager took the slip of paper in his hand, and the name of the man that he signed was Rudyard Kipling. It's a story that I told because of the desire for home that God has placed in all of us. If we can see it in this simple animal, how much do we see it in ourselves? We have within us a desire for a home that we've never even seen yet. For God to say to the people that they can come back to their own land is the top best prize that God could give. Because coming home to the land represents our permanent home. We are citizens of heaven. And we get so disappointed with the leaders here on earth that we get agitated, much like the animal in the story. We need to hear the voice of the king, the voice of our shepherd from our heavenly home bringing us the songs of Zion that we can sing. We want to worship the King of Heaven, who is also the King of all nations and the head of the church. We're homesick for Him and for Heaven. Our King makes things right. So what have we seen? The Lord God promised to make things right. Shepherds who make things right. The King Himself who makes things right. And nothing's more right than being home together. And every time we worship here, it's a foretaste of Heaven where we're together with Christ and his people. So my conclusion and application is this. Rejoice in the present reign of the high king of heaven, Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the present reign of the high king of heaven, Jesus Christ. There's two reasons to rejoice. One is that Christ is the king ruling over everything for us right now. And secondly, that at the end, the king will take us home to heaven. 
the term my people occurs more than 40 times in the book of Jeremiah. My people. This theme occurs in our passage. The sheep of my pasture, verse 1. My people, verse 2. My flock, verse 2. My flock, again in verse 3. It shows that we belong to God. You're mine. My people. One aspect of Palm Sunday, one aspect of the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ is that I belong to him, that we belong to him. Think of it. After all of our sins, think of it. 22 chapters we studied of the sins of God's people laid out by his prophet Jeremiah, the faithful preacher. After all of that, what does God say? My people. After all the sins of all of us here, after all the sins of our leaders, our shepherds, our kings, our pastors, our elders, our leaders in government, we in this church, we in the kingdom of God, are the people of God. We are his people. And we can rejoice in the reign of our king. So with regard to bad leaders, remember the king makes all things right. This passage is a beautiful and welcome shaft of light. Because if it's true of the audience of Jeremiah that God could still say, my people, then it's true of us in our day, in our generation, and all the wrongs that we have done. It's like a Palm Sunday that shows up after a long, dark winter and gives us hope and brightness of how things can get better and better because of our God fulfilling his promises to us. Maybe we get discouraged because of bad leaders in government. We are to remember that Christ rules and he will make all things right. Paul wrote about this in Romans 13, 4, in particular about our perspective on every government ruler. He is God's servant for your good, says Scripture, Romans 13, 4. He is God's servant for your good. We must accept all governmental leaders as God's servants as they rule for a brief time under Christ the true king and Christ the son of David. The same is true for every other sphere of life. Bad leaders in the workplace, bad leaders in the military, bad leaders in the hospital, the laboratory, the schools, and the universities. Wherever there are leaders who are not Christ-like, we can grieve it, but have the same perspective that they're servants of God for our good. How can it be for our good? Because in the hands of our king, he's still working his perfect purposes for us. He's truly ruling and overturning the desires of each leader. He began to reign at his resurrection. Acts 2, 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he rose again, and he's made both Lord and Christ. Wait, is Jesus really in control when there's countries at war? Countries that are passing bad policies and bad laws, countries that are putting people in Supreme Court that don't hold biblical laws and biblical definitions of them? Is Jesus really in control of each nation right now? Yes. I submit to you that is the fundamental purpose of this passage, and it is immensely consoling to us. He makes things right. Not yet. He will. Think of Hebrews 2.8 about God the Father putting everything in subjection to Jesus Christ. We'll read this further truth. In putting everything in subjection to Christ, 
God the Father left nothing outside of Christ's control. Hebrews 2.8. God fulfilled his promises to Jesus Christ and to us in Jesus Christ. So the things of this passage apply to us. We can be fruitful and multiply, which fulfills the creation command given in Adam and Eve. The land of Israel will be like the paradise regained, filled with the people of God, each in their proper territory, a place where they belong. It represents the church of Jesus Christ, where we are where God has called us to be. Those people of God would be ruled by good leaders. They would be ruled by good shepherds and good kings under the ultimate leadership of the good shepherd himself, as he said in here in verse 4. They would tend God's sheep the way a shepherd should. These promises were all fulfilled in history after the book of Jeremiah. They were fulfilled when God brought his people back from exile in Babylon. God appointed good men over his people, men like Ezra and Nehemiah, who actually cared for God's sheep. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah have complete lists of all the names of exiles who returned from captivity. One of the reasons for that is because God is fulfilling his promise in our passage. Not one was missing from the list. These promises had another fulfillment later again. The Lord fulfilled them in the later arrival of Jesus, who himself said, I am the good shepherd, John 10, 11. And when Jesus said that, he was claiming to be the fulfillment of everything Jeremiah 23 promised about good shepherds. He's the head of the church today, the chief shepherd, the king, we could say, who gathers the remnant of a sheep from all nations. He's doing so now through our missionary work. Churches are being formed. People are being called to Jesus. He calls his own sheep by name and calls them out of the world, John 10.3. Jesus said to Peter three times in John 21, feed my sheep. That's the king giving orders to his ministers to feed his people. He's telling Peter, he's telling all pastors and elders that your job is to shepherd and truly care for the precious people of God. Because believers are not redeemed by the parting of mighty waters. And believers are not redeemed by a mighty return from exile. Believers are redeemed by nothing less than the death of the great king and then his resurrection. It bears reflection for us this coming week. 1 Corinthians 1.30, You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So our application tonight is we rejoice in the present reign of the high king of heaven, Jesus Christ. He is the king who makes things right, especially that he made us right with God. Our salvation that we celebrate on Good Friday and on Resurrection Sunday is an event of such magnitude that the liberation from Egypt and the liberation from the exile in Babylon are nearly forgotten in comparison with the redeeming work that we are entering this week to focus on, reflect upon, be thankful to God for, because it means everything. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Rejoice in the present reign of the high King of heaven, even Jesus. Let's pray.